Now, I had asked David before uh, we entered the cave if he could tell us anything. He basically said, why is it that there's these minerals that only occur here and nowhere else in the world that are indications of high temperature heat very fast? He says, these can only occur in the presence of a time reactor. He knows this scientifically. Now, he's sort of, when he says this, he's pandering to a scientific proof. Yet, and I don't question him one minute, because he's the one who brings all this up in the first place. The problem is, with the scientific proof, he's going to have to show us a time reactor and what it discharges in order to show this to the whole world. But Can you explain what a time reactor is? Certainly. Uh, a time reactor is a device that is uh, patented by Dr. Anderson and created uh, by him that is designed to slow down or speed up time. The time reactor is basically a device that he created and, and he worked on it to the point where he could put humans into it. And that began, he reported this in 2010, about 12 years ago. So that's what a time reactor is. And now the, the incredible thing about a time reactor is when it, what he, in the early stages of it, of, of working with it, he found out that it was giving out more energy than it was putting in. This is sort of like, you know, when you have your solar system on your house and it produces more energy than you use. So it goes back to the power company and they pay you for it. You've all, people have all heard of this. Well, this was what was happening with his, his device. He was charging it up, putting power in to run it, but it was producing more energy. And then he put in, and he found out that because of uh, time dilation, there is a principle by which when a change in time occurs, there is a discharge of energy. Now, this discharge of energy is so great that it could solve the world's power problems. But that's a political issue, not a scientific issue. And it's only a scientific issue to the degree that science is ruled by politics. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great pleasure to welcome Peter Moon back to Exopolitics today. Welcome, Peter. Tell us about your trip to Romania. Well, thank you, Michael. It's nice to be here again. So I went to uh, Romania this summer, the end of July, from the... Um, this was the third, I had not been to Romania in three years because of COVID restrictions. And while it was not impossible to travel to Romania, they had scaled down their operation at Atlanticron, the camp where I go to. And it, it, I just wasn't motivated to go there with all the various restrictions and whatnot. But uh, I did return for the first time in three years and it was quite a eye-opening journey. Now, the purpose of this trip was, of course, to visit Atlanticron 
and to renew my uh, affiliation with it. I'm, I'm also a board member of the World Genesis Foundation, which sponsors Atlanticron or helps sponsor Atlanticron, which is now an independent uh, NGO or not for gain organization. Now, the then what my plan was, was to return to Chocolavina Cave, uh, would be my fifth trip to Chocolavina Cave. Now, of course, Chocolavina Cave, for those of you who are not familiar in the listening audience, is considered by my friend, Dr. David Anderson, time control scientist, who actually has a time reactor. He said, this is the most significant time reactor is a time machine, in effect. Uh, he said that Chocolavina Cave is the most significant place on the planet by far with re regard to phenomena concerning uh, a time reactor. And this, so I had been to there by happenstance previously uh, before I, he even told me this. The synchronicity of that fact, you know, struck both of us as quite remarkable. So I returned there in 2016 to check it out again and look at it. And I discovered there was another cave uh, from the main cave. The main cave is huge. Uh, you walk in, but then you have to, it's full of water and you. it's not easy to penetrate without equipment. So we discovered that cave. I'd already been to that cave, but then we went up and we found another cave, which was a, a man-made entrance, but it had a steel door shut. So there were, there was another adventure subsequent to that where I discovered a scout camp there, which was, this is a place that I could stay. I made friends with the owner of the camp and then returned uh, a year later and was actually got to go into the big cave, the huge cave. We had equipment, we had uh, wetsuits and hard hats and, and you know, equipment to go in deep into the cave. We went a mile into the cave. Now, the what I discovered is that the area that I really wanted to get into was the dry cave, the higher cave. And this was the subject of last summer's visit, get into the dry cave. Now, the dry cave requires permission and it's not easy. Well, it might be easy to get in I don't know, but anyway, I didn't do anything. I had a friend who'd been to the cave with me and he arranged for permission to get into the cave. I didn't lift a finger. In fact, he said that uh, the only reason he was able to do this was because his wife's cousin uh, is a cave explorer. He knew all the right things to say to get us in. And indeed he got us in, but my friend became ill with COVID. So he couldn't come. So he transferred the, there was all these machinations, you know, things can go very wrong when you're trying to do something. And here I was not really trying to do, I mean, I wanted to go in the cave, but I wasn't, I didn't even ask him. He just says, I've got permission for us to go in. And the owner of the camp, the, sh the permission was shifted to him. So he came with me with a, a friend of his and, and, uh, I was also taking Dr. David Anderson's wife with me, Heather Anderson, uh, the president of the World Genesis Foundation. And I've known her for, you know, gosh, 14 years or so. 
and we work well together. Uh, we we taught together at at Atlantic Cron. She's a professional teacher who's expert with um, radio and astronomy and any subject she can teach because she's got a lot of experience. So she uh, went with me and I got to uh, share a lot of information with her and whatnot. And she actually came into the cave with me, a cave that to the best of my knowledge, Dr. Anderson has not been in. And I asked him specifically if he could give us any clues as to what we would seek. Well, I mean, before I talk about that, uh, I'm going to talk about going into the cave, where we, before we went to the cave, we met this spelunker, which means a cave explorer who lives above the cave. Uh, he came down and talked to us. He was very academic and had to mention this skull they found. It's one of the oldest human skulls ever found, and it's it's famous in archaeology, but I was not interested in this. I'm not really interested in this skull they found. I mean, it's it's been covered by archaeologists, talked about and whatnot, so on and so forth. I was interested in getting into the cave and being close to where these minerals are, which give evidence of a time reactor. So the, the man who let us in to the cave, he must have come from 45 minutes away he was a biologist and he had the keys to this metal door. And he, his name was Robert, he spoke perfect English, very nice man. And he basically was there to guide, serve as our guide. So I asked him if there were any white bats in this cave. And he, now the reason I asked about white bats is because I've written a book called The White Bat and I had a dream of a white bat before I ever came to Romania, like many years earlier. So almost 20 years earlier. And he says, oh yes, there's several white bats. And I said, well, that's very interesting. He says, they're albinos. I said, well, I've seen pictures of white bats that do not have pink eyes. He says, well, those are partial albinos. Now I've been told separately, and it's not from a scientific source, but that there is a whole different species of white bats in, in Transylvania. So anyway, it was remarkable to me that, that actually this bat, according to the biologist, has white, has white bats in it. I did not see any, but he opened the door. You walk down about 100 yards or so through this man-made cave, which is, it looks sort of Disney-esque if you are in a underground cavern in Disney that was a created cavern but it's real rock and stuff. It just, the way it's hewn. And so you go in there and then you get to this metal door, which you have to, you know, kind of crouch down to get in. I'm, you know, over six feet. So it's, you know, if I crouch down, he kind of helps me through. Everybody gets through. There's about five or six of us. I don't remember exactly. I think maybe five of us with him. And we uh, penetrate the cave and we go in and it's, it's not as spectacular as the wet cave because the wet cave, you've got water rushing by, uh, everything seems a little sharper and uh, the rocks and everything. It just, I guess it's the water that makes things so uh, intense. But this cave was of course dry. It was very interesting. I've been in far more interesting caves in Romania than this one as far as, but it's, it's interesting. And if one's never been in a cave before, it would prove probably very interesting. 
there are different nooks and crannies, of course. And then some of them you could penetrate into if you were like a bat or a, a drone or something like that. But it's not humanly easy to do it unless you had equipment. And I don't know where they go, but th there's a main road. And we're going to a place called the bivouac room. Now, the bivouac room, which means to camp out or something, but the bivouac room was of great fascination and, and enigmatic to me because I could not, uh, on the maps, it wasn't clear where it was. It was not clear to me from looking at the extant maps on the internet. So it was like a great mystery. And then I found that my friend had asked for permission to go to the bivouac room and we were led straight there without me having to figure anything out. But on the way, there are different stations of uh, where geologists have done exploring of minerals. So they'll be kind of roped off. I mean, they're roped off or, or separated. You can go into them. Uh, it's like going down into like a pit of five foot and looking at it. And these were of some interest and you're looking around the cave. Finally, we get to the end of the cave, which is indeed the bivouac room. And this became of interest to me. Now I had asked David before uh, we entered the cave if he could tell us anything. And he had mentioned that uh, why are, you know, I, I could dig up the quote if I can find it, but he had uh, basically said, there are minerals here. I'm not gonna be able to dig this up quick. So he basically said, why is it that there's these minerals that only occur here and nowhere else in the world that are indications of high temperature heat very fast. He says, these can only occur in the presence of a time reactor. He knows this scientifically. Now he's sort of, when he says this, he's pandering to a scientific proof yet. And I don't question him one minute because he's the one who brings all this up in the first place. The problem is with the scientific proof, he's going to have to show us a time reactor and what it discharges in order to show this to the whole world. But can you explain what what can you explain what a time reactor is? Certainly. Uh, a time reactor is a device that is uh, patented by Dr. Anderson and created uh, by him that is designed to slow down or speed up time. And I have a the patent application uh, that he submitted uh, that I can give to anybody who's interested. You can have a time reactor patent, Sky Books. You should be able to download it. If not, you can write to me at petermoon333 at gmail.com and I will send you a copy of the time reactor patent. But the time reactor is basically a device that he created and, and he worked on it to the point where he could put humans into it. And that began, he reported this in 2010, about 12 years ago. So that's what a time reactor is. And now the, the incredible thing about a time reactor is when it, what he, in the early stages of it, of, of working with it, he found out that it was giving out more energy than it was putting in. This is sort of like, you know, when you have your solar system on your house and it produces more energy than you use. So it goes back to the power company and they pay you for it. You've all, people have all heard of this. Well, 
this was what was happening with his his device. He was charging it up, putting power in to run it, but it was producing more energy. And then he put in, and he found out that because of uh, time dilation, there is a principle by which when a change in time occurs, there is a discharge of energy. Now, this discharge of energy is so great that it could solve the world's power problems. But that's a political issue, not a scientific issue. And it's only a scientific issue to the degree that science is ruled by politics. But that's just a brief description of a time reactor. So when a time reactor discharges, it emits an enormous amount of heat, which will result in the uh, manifestation of certain elements, one of which is hydroxystalactite. It's hard to pronounce and it's hard to spell. Hydroxystalactite. And this is what I was interested in seeing, if I could see this. So uh, he had given us or loaned us uh, via his wife a spectrum analyzer and an EMF detector. And I had an engineer with me a uh, former colleague of David's, uh, not in the time travel business, but he uh, he came with me and, you know, he monitored these things. But we were, you know, what we were conducting was not a scientific expedition. We were poking around uh, because just to get into the cave was a, I'd been working on this since 2016. This is like six years it took me to actually find a way to get permission to get into the cave. And it was just through my connections and associations that I was able to do this. So uh, we just went in and basically we found uh, one area, well, there were a few areas, but one area where there was a pit about a six, maybe six feet deep, maybe not much more than that. And there was this yellow powder and the yellow powder put out a frequency of, I think it was 23 to 24, maybe it was 2.3 to 2.4 gigahertz. David said it would should be 23 to 24 gigahertz. So it was a harmonic of what he said. It was yellow. It looked like sulfur, but I don't believe it was sulfur. So that gave out a reaction. Uh, then we found a little alcove, a little tiny area, which looked like the hydroxystalactite. And I gave a piece to Heather because she's into gems and crystals and minerals. I said, maybe you can evaluate this better than I can because you're already into that. And what was important, so of course I gave that to her and we had uh, uh, an adventure, I can say. But what was important to me uh, was that I actually go to this area and witness it. And when I say witness, I'm talking about not just visualizing it, but being there, it's sort of like uh, a quantum correspondence to this place, which David says is so important. I'd already been to the cave six years earlier, or actually even eight years earlier, but it took me eight years to kind of go in and sort of touch this spot. And if I didn't touch the exact spot, I was so close to it that it's insignificance. It was it was important for me to be there. And another very important uh, connection that I made uh, 
on that trip, which was really the apex of the whole trip to me, when you're, you're trying to do something, this magical date of August 12th, uh, what happened during this biorhythm? And they, see, I, I originally visited this cave during the, what we call the Montauk biorhythm every August 10th to 14th, also known as the Lion's Gate in Egypt. It's the portal. It's considered a portal, uh, a biorhythm. So this, these events always occur during this time period. So on this, this year, what I was able to do was connect Heather, David's wife, to my in-laws. And now, because we visited my in-laws who, you know, have a beautiful home in Transylvania, which is new. They didn't always live there. And we visited them. And the synergy between the two of them was over the top. You so you you meet two people, you want them to get along, you want to meet them, but it was just over the top synergy correspondence. And to me, this was a big sign that I have connected my uh, my time travel family, if I can, and I can kind of call them that because uh, although I don't see them very often, I'm kind of close to them, you know, and they are. I do consider them like family. And then my actual in-laws in Transylvania. It's like connecting my two families together or two of my families. I have other families, you know, including my genetic family, but connecting them all together. Um, well, can I just kind of like just sure. get clear here about the chocolate in that cave and this time reactor? I mean, you talked about David Anderson having a patent for a time reactor. And of course, chocolate in a cave is very important in terms of it being related in somehow being a time reactor. So what was it about Choclavina cave that there was evidence of some sort of time dilation effects? Well, I mean, it, did it's, you it's it mineral. Again? It's in the minerals. It's the hydroxystalactite, uh, which is this mineral that's kind of orangish, orangish. And it, it only can occur with high heat. Now, if you read the scientific papers on it, they say, well, this is a combustion of bat guano. That cave was mined and created that not the cave was created, but the tunnel to it, the man-made tunnel was created to mine bat guano for use in explosives uh, during the Ceausescu regime. So all the bat guano has been mined out of it, but it was, I mean, it would have gone up probably as high as four feet, if not higher. And they mined all that because it was a resource. But there, the scientists claim that it, it's a combustion of bat guano, yet in the same time, they admit it's not scientific, and there's no way bat guano can can do that. It just it's it's not going to happen. So David has witnessed this with his time reactor that when there is a discharge, it creates a high heat, which will result in the manifestation of these mineral this mineral in particular. So he said that this can this is evidence of a time reactor. Now, the way with David is he sort of pieces out information. He There's a lot more information he could give us, but it was like, sort of like pulling teeth to get as much information out of him as I have. So that was, um, you know, it, it is enigmatic. It is mysterious, but this is the, the path I have pursued in 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 terms of uh, you know it, I mean just look at how long it took me to get into the cave 
Now, I've also talked to you in the past how the whole tradition of, of the Romanian indigenous spirits known as the Solomonari are there to uh, invite you into the inner earth and in for initiation. This is the tradition of their god Zalmoxi. He was initiated by being led into the inner earth for four years where he received initiation and transcended from a human into a god. So this is the, I'm sort of living out that tradition, but it happens to come uh, by way of a time travel scientist who brought me to Romania in the first place and pointed out this discovery of the cave. So the cave became my magnetic point of interest uh, due to all of the things in my research leading there that led me there. Right, but isn't that kind of like circumstantial evidence? I mean, you're seeing these minerals or you're seeing kind of artifacts that could be indicative of some kind of high energy discharge that caused them. Now, I mean, it, it really, is that, you know, all you would see if you go to Chocolavina in a cave, these kind of like uh, artifacts, mineral artifacts that are suggestive of a time reactor effect? But I mean, well, yeah, it's, is... it's circumstantial indeed, but you have to understand is what I'm I'm tracing the in this respect and it's not it's not my exclusive part of my journey but I'm tracing the uh, scientific uh, findings and assertions of a scientist meaning Dr. David Anderson I'm pursuing uh, in the wake of his scientific uh, edifications it's not as I say, this was not a scientific expedition. It was, I'm poking around and I'm looking uh, because of what he has told me. And of course, in the beginning, I said, how this all started As I said, what can you tell me about Romania? Uh, and he, he came back and told me about Chocolavina Cave and how it was so important for this reason and that there was a time reactor uh, phenomena that occurred either 200 or 2000 years ago that they could tell by the nature of the sediment. Now, I was, we were both very moved by the fact that I had been taken to Chaklavina Cave that previous summer by an archaeologist. And I didn't ask to go there. I was brought there. And this is the tradition of the Solomonari or the shepherds or the sheep. They will bring you to a cave. So I was living out a tradition. And that's really more of my main uh, impetus here is to, uh, it, because that has been my journey in Romania, is, is to blend into this tradition. Of course, it was introduced to me, and I've been guided by it. And sometimes it's like a hand leading me uh, when I'm not asking, and sometimes I am asking. For example, I went to this cave in 2018 and asked to get inside. I asked to get inside meditatingly, but I never asked anybody for permission to get in either cave. I was invited this, by human beings, but I was invited. I didn't say, I would like to go into this cave to somebody who could put me there. I did say it actually to a master mason, uh, who had been into the cave because he heard me talk about it. And he, but I was asking him sort of playfully. Uh, it's, it's like asking the local priest to see the Pope. He's not gonna get you to see the Pope, uh, but you can pretend like he can. 
put in a good word for you. And that was more of a psychic game playing. But I, I didn't ask to get permission. I was brought, I was invited into the cave by human beings who were my friends. So, but I didn't ask them to, I didn't say, get me into the cave, please. You know, so that, that was sort of the journey. And I was able to bring uh, David's wife with me, which was very special because she had never been into this area before. She'd been to Romania many, many times, but had never had the opportunity or time to go. So uh, that, that was a remarkable uh, journey. But as I say, I'm not really trying to prove anything. The proof will actually have to be delivered from him himself to the scientific world, because part of that proof, as I said before, would be showing what happens when there is a time reactor discharge. There was a uh, documentary done. It was not done by the Discovery Channel, but it was done in conjunction with the Discovery Channel. It was to be aired there, and this is in the early 2000s, of Dr. David Anderson's Time uh, Research Center. It was called the Time Travel Research Center. But they, uh, it was shelved. It was shelved after, what was that, 9-11 event, yeah. So that, but they did, the time reactor at that time was not uh, built to the point where it could put human beings in it. It's been much more sophisticatedly refined since then. So that, uh, and of course, I've the only part of the time reactor I've seen is a video of the early, uh, early version that probably was similar to what the, the documentary would have shown. Uh, okay, so just going to the topic of the Bujeji mountain complex and the Hall of Record found there, you know, during this trip to Romania, did you encounter anyone or get any more information about the existence and the current operations at the Hall of Records under the Sphinx there at the Bujeji Mountains? Well, I, the only thing I can say is that uh, about that topic is that I was not particularly investigating that and on this trip. But I did meet with my publisher, uh, who is Radu's publisher in uh, Sarin Hormuz in Bucharest. We spent a whole afternoon together and we had a excellent time together. We get along very well. He is Radu's contact. Now, he had told me, uh, and we weren't talking about, well, this is what he told me. Radu said the book that he's working on, which would be his eighth book, is a very difficult book. Now, he was supposed to deliver it, boy, I think it was two years ago, then last year, and it keeps getting delayed. And he says, it's a very difficult book, and it's going to be his last book, is this is what he said. He said that uh, he, had, he has tried to, he thinks, he thinks he can talk Radu into doing more books. Radu was eventually, originally supposed to do six books, I think, after um, Secret Parchment. So that would mean a 10 books. And right now, he's... Uh, on the verge of delivering the eighth book. Now, why is it difficult? He didn't say. I don't know. But uh, that, and why is he going to stop writing? Or he thinks he's going to stop writing. He can always change his mind. So he's changed his views, apparently. 
and I, I really don't know. Uh, so with regards to that, uh, sometimes you hear anecdotal stories and whatnot, and I might have, but I don't really remember them because I don't really need, I'm not really in search of trying to, you know, prove this or whatnot. I've been there so many times to the general area. But uh, so I don't really have anything update other than on what Radu's status is. Now, he did say that he was hoping the book would get to him by September. And if it got to him by September, he could turn it around probably by December, where he, which what point he could give it to me in Romanian, and then I'd have to translate it. So it doesn't look like it's, I have not heard a peep from him that he did receive the book. Uh, maybe it'll be plopped in my lap uh, or in my e in email um, inbox by Thanksgiving or something, but I don't know that. So that that's the, the best update I can give you vis-a-vis -vis my recent trip. Okay, well, I'd like to spend a little bit of time now looking at book six in the series, uh, the, the Forgotten Genesis, and I wondered if you could kind of like just you know, begin by telling us about the, the front cover of it, uh, where you, you have the, uh, like, looks like some kind of stone pedestal with someone on top. I mean, I'll try and do a screen share just so we can uh, see it. Uh, but it, it has some kind of uh, gene, uh, gen genetic strands coming out of it. Yeah, I have a, I have the screen share. Show you okay, well, I, I will share the... Uh concept behind the uh, the artist there. The artist who did this, uh, who really did not wish to receive public credit for it, was uh, is basically a Hollywood producer who's very gifted. And that pedestal, he was playing off of the Montauk horse that's on a pedestal. You know, he, it was, he was playing off of integrating this because he was my go-to guy for everything. We were going to do a, a big media uh, event with the, with the Montauk project. And so we were, he was trying to integrate that th theme of Montauk into this. And of course, the DNA, this book is all about DNA of, of humans and how they, their DNAs evolved. But this was his concept I'm no longer working with him. Uh, I was very close to him for six years, but he dropped me like a hot potato without any explanation. Uh, and so this is not, sort of thing is not new to me, but, uh, and perhaps it's for the best. So uh, be that as it may, uh, that, that's, uh, that's an explanation of the cover. But the main thing uh, about the cover with regards to the contents of the book is it's this DNA coming out, this explanation. And, you know, and because you know, the man is an incredible artist, when he deeps into his subconscious, there might be a lot of significance to what he created as art there, of it coming out of the pedestal, in, which was in the Montauk horse, because it was always said that there was supposedly technology in that pedestal. So maybe that technology is related to this technology in, in uh, the inner earth. But be that, that's an explanation of the cover. So we, we can move on to the basically the book. And of course, the book is a, uh, 
basically talking the the overall or description of the book is that we're talking about how changes in DNA have taken place over millennia and how mankind evolved into what it is today. And this would include uh, explanations, uh, positions, mythological positions with regards to Atlantis, Shambhala, Hyperborea, Troy. And he goes to the author, Radu Cinemar goes to extraordinary lengths to illustrate and graphically portray uh, so many things. So he's put a tremendous amount of effort into this and it caused him a lot of headaches just in trying to get it right. Can you explain how he got the information in terms of some chair and holographic info being sent to him uh, by, with the help of beings from Apelos? Yes, yes. Uh, this goes back into the history of uh, what's in the third book, Mystery of Egypt, where they obtained these platinum tablets, which could be likened to CDs. They're not CDs, but likened to that, because if you touched a certain area of them, they would read out uh, holographic imagery. But there was a problem in translating them. So they finally had a breakthrough, but it had to do with the usage of the chair in Egypt. It was like a chair and it had to do with a crystal, but they, they hit a block. They couldn't figure out how to really read these tablets for a while. And basically one of the beings in the inner earth came to their rescue who they had contacted. Um, his name was Drin and he had appeared to them, but he was basically referred to the inner earth city of Apelos. Now, Apelos is below an area in Transylvania known as the Apuseni Mountains. I've never really been there, but according to Radu's description, there are people from the inner earth who live above ground there, and they have their own warehouses where they trade with the upper world, the surface world. And it would be very interesting, perhaps, it would really, I might consider it a waste of time, unless I had the time to spend, to just go traveling around there and looking for these beings, because they're not necessarily going to show themselves to you. And if they do show themselves to you, you know, they're probably going to surprise you and They'll be like the girl selling flowers on the corner and you won't, oh God, that was the person from the inner earth. It's just sort of mysterious. I, I, I wouldn't, unless I really had time on my hands, I wouldn't be going off on a journey to, to try and find these people. Uh, but nevertheless, he says they exist and they basically facilitate rather sizable operations on the surface world. And that there's an interchange. And it's not just done in Romania. There would be other areas of the planet where you have surface dwellers who are really inner earth beings uh, indulging in commerce between the inner earth and the surface world. Uh, so in, in any case, he is brought to this area. I think he kind of describes it as a warehouse where he's offered this 
devices. Uh, the devices is kind of like a, a helmet or a visor, which could be very roughly approximated to what do they call these head sync devices? They have these head sync devices, but this is not a head sync device. It's much more elaborate than that with a visor. And it basically will give a holographic projection. And it's a holographic projection where there is an interchange between what is in his mind and the beings that are teaching him from the inner earth. So it's a, it's sort of like a classroom. Um, like if you went into a classroom and you had a pretty advanced computer monitor there and you were interacting with the computer rather than with a professor. And of course the professor does appear but in holographic form. And her name is Mentia and she becomes his teacher or at least one of them. And so he's like learning all of this information and it basically goes into a series of lessons about the, um, about the way human DNA evolved on this earth. And it goes back into ancient, ancient history. And of course, uh, that's kind of what the, the general thesis is about. We can get more specific. Yes, so there's uh, these um, platinum tablets that had to be interpreted. So can you just kind of clarify in terms of what Radu Cinema was seeing through these uh, lenses, the holographic projections he was seeing through the lenses with the help of these beings from Apelos with the holographic information stored on these platinum, platinum tablets that were retrieved from the Egypt uh, Hall of Records? Well, I think the, the, the best thing to do is to say an overview of what this is all about. It's East, his mentor Cesar or Caesar is basically talking about an evolutionary leap in human beings. And he says, we have to consider DNA. If we're going, uh, if we're going to make an evolutionary leap as a species, and this is what so much of, I guess, attention is put on with people who are progressive thinkers or new age thinkers. They think of this idea and they make an make often make uh, comments about moving into 5D or something like this, fifth dimensional. And these, these things get, they become rather non-scientific to say the least and rather assuming, but he's talking about an evolutionary leap, but they're all alluding and rooting for an evolutionary leap of human beings, which is gonna happen in the structure of the DNA. This is not a new idea. Nevertheless, uh, what, what's being said here and what we're being taught in this book is that it's all location, environment, and even the stars uh, have an influence over DNA over a time period. Now, of course, you can see this very commonly 
if certain animals have different characteristics or even human beings in cold weather or hot weather, these, these are very obvious. But the point he's making is it occurs over a very long period of time, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. So he's basically saying that over the millennia that DNA has been stewarded by alien beings. But that stewardship allows for a certain amount of spontaneity. If you control everything, you're not you're not going to have anything but a controlled situation. You have to let it a certain degree of spontaneity and randomness occur. Otherwise, it's not a progressive evolution. It's more of a robotic evolution. And, and that's kind of what, and, and there's, as they say, elite, uh, what, what, not elite, but um, a long progression of evolution. I, I'm trying to say a long detailed, he gives detailed explanations detailed explanations of, of how mankind evolved uh, from a less, you know, more uh, primitive state into a state that was more enlightened. And he actually separates the two classes of beings, uh, which one is more Neanderthal-like and the other is more physical or, uh, or not physical, more spiritual. Well, I want to get into... Um, how that all began. Now, in the book Forgotten Genesis, it, it pinpoints that 432,000 years ago, that this is when a massive sphere-shaped ship called the Nibiru uh, appeared, and it was populated by these Assyrian extraterrestrials, and that's when they began the genetic, the genetic modification with uh, primates then existing on humanity. So yeah, can you what can you say about? I mean, that seems to match what uh, some have talked about in terms of this planetoid or planet Nibiru housing or being where the Anunnaki live. I mean, it, yeah, can you talk about that because I know well, Zechariah yes, Sitchin yes. popularized that idea of Nibiru yes, being a, yes. a planet. Yes, he said that that is a giant misconception uh, that this was a planet. He said it wasn't a planet, it was a huge spaceship. It was huge. And this is his, his clarification on the matter. And for those who uh, have plugged into Zachariah Sitchin, this will give you a different perspective on his work and perhaps a clarity. I know it's been very popular uh, with people who have followed the so-called ET movement, if that's what one could call it. Um, but that, but it's basically that simple. It's kind of saying, well, it wasn't quite the way people think it is. It's really a huge spaceship that was here to steward mankind into a um, state of evolution. What I would also say is that what's, I think, worthwhile contemplating with regards to this book is that everything that's being played out here 
is has to do with taking place over a long period of time. We live right now what some people like to call the end times, but whether or not it's the end times, we're reaching a crescendo of civilization where so many things are happening so fast uh, that it's like uh, we're hitting a critical mass in terms of consciousness, or at least we think we are, uh, because we can certainly gauge by the history we grew up studying and learning that things are happening at a much more rapid clip. So this, this uh, makes us think that we are special in some respects, and perhaps we are. But when you go back to this, it's like all of this long, slow stewarding of evolution, uh, some of which, if not much of which is spontaneity and random evolution is reaching it a certain climax. And we are the beneficiaries of this, even if you consider us only as being entertained by it all. Um, and I don't mean to diminish it by saying it's just entertainment. Uh, so th th this is what we're dealing with um, in, the, uh, in what's being offered here. Long time, things have been going on a long time. So with uh, this astrological component of DNA modification, I thought that was very interesting. I had never come across that before, where the positioning of this uh, planetoid-sized sh uh, ship Nibiru played a role in the genetic alterations. And in the, in the book, it has diagrams showing how, depending on how Nibiru is positioned relative to the Earth and the Sun, that that astrological influence actually made a major impact on, on the DNA modification. So, yeah, that was a surprise to me. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yes, I, I, I can. And I will say that uh, by this book and also by um, what's in the, the, the following book, The Etheric Crystal, it's quite evident, as it's simply stated, that the author's not, and I say the authors, I don't mean just Radu, I mean his mentors have a great uh, reverence to astrology. But what I would say, and they don't mention a lot, but they, you know, they pay attention to it because it has to do with subtle influence. What I will say, and, and I, I do agree with you, it's generally not presented like this way. It's some sort of novel. On the other hand, uh, if you study deeply astrology and Kabbalah and the interrelation between the two, you'll see that DNA is expressed in archetypal rev reference to the planets. And so, so basically, like say, obviously, warrior genetics would be akin to Mars. Venusian genetics would be akin to Venus. So we all have part of these so-called planetary archetypes in our DNA, and we all come out a little bit differently, a different blend. And, and it, that's what makes us unique as an individual, uh, aside from, because even those of us who have pretty similar DNA with our kinfolk, we're all different individuals. So, but basically, so the DNA does contain the archetypal influence of the planets, but there's even other studies where you can regulate the, or get an insight into what's going on with your body with regard to the planets. So th there is a correspondence there. Now, when he talks about 
and this is more like on the, uh, I guess what you'd say, just like your astrology. Well, this is going to be a good day to do sports. This is going to be a good day to make love. Uh, that That's on a day-to-day -day basis or a week-to-week -week basis. But with regard to the more major changes in the DNA, this is, yes, would be aligned with the stars having a subtle influence. It's a subtle influence. It's not necessarily going to be quantifiable in ordinary scientific terms. And the reason it's not quantifiable is because of the instrumentation, which is just not what they do. So can, can I just kind of like interject because sure, I want to sure. kind of get an idea of how this works because you know people are familiar with the idea of astrology being relevant in terms of the precise time and location where you're born and the position of the stars and that maps out your you know gives you an idea of the personality which you know has been incredibly accurate for a lot of people that explore that um yeah and some apply that to the birth of a nation like the united states you know they say well you know july 4th 1776 that 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 also has astrological significance in terms of the role the united states has played as a nation so in terms of this what the information radu cinema has presented it seems that uh, the human species in terms of the modification or the latest update that these syrians aboard this nibiru spacecraft created you know depending on the stars the alignments of the planets and and the nibiru ship that that kind of kind of marks a particular uh, species that they modified with the characteristics that they want. Is that is that roughly correct? Yes, yes, yes. But I would also say something that's important to mention here, which is not necessarily mentioned in the book, is that astrologers, I mean, there's all sorts of different types of astrologers, but there are astrologers who have told me you can, you can put, uh, you know, a piece of garbage or any instrument up into orbit, and you can astrologically correlate that. It can become like a, it might not be as influential as say a planet or an asteroid, but anything orbiting the sky can become astrologically referenced. Uh, so by that, what I'm trying, what I'm alluding to here is that this huge spaceship, uh, Nibiru, was with the name of it, was, I don't know if that was the actual name. I think it was. But anyway, this planet has an astrological referencing of itself. So it's it becomes a, a big influence in itself. Now, the fact that they were in there doing things, uh, steering basically the course of human evolution, but always as a part of that steering, they were leaving an open-ended agenda like say you might program this team to win and if it's a sport but you would leave an allowance there 30 40 percent for it to lose in other words it has to it has to perform it has to respond and it might not win if it's programmed to win uh it might bring out an even better team who the hell knows that's just an analogy from a sports perspective but there, there. In other words, there, there is always this open door for spontaneity. What I would also compare that to is the what's the so-called maverick element in evolution. They say there's always a maverick element in genetics, 
that will defy everything. But that tends to be more like the, the green on a roulette wheel appearing, it doesn't appear very often. And it might even appear less than green does in roulette. So that, that's, that's a principle of evolution is you always have a random chaotic factor. Well, one of the things that I found interesting from the uh, Forgotten Genesis book was that it corroborated what's found in the Sumerian records. And you know, while Sitchin was wrong about the uh, Nibiru being a planet, that in fact it was a spacecraft, a, a spherical spacecraft that had this astrological influence. Uh, nevertheless, he was right that the Sumerian records talked about ships coming out of that Nibiru uh, planetoid descending and then began extracting precious metals, especially gold, and that this was, you know, the, the initial kind of like landing of this, uh, the Syrians or the Anunnaki uh, from this spacecraft, and that eventually, because of the difficulty of mining gold and other precious metals, that uh, it was decided that uh, humans needed to be created uh, as a kind of slave species. So, yeah, I found that interesting. You want to comment up, up, upon that well, correspondence between uh, Sitchin's material or the Sumerian I, I records? Haven't, I haven't, as I told you before, I haven't really read Sitchin's material. I tried to read it. It was first pointed out to me by Al Bielik, and I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't make sense out of it. This is just, you know, it didn't resonate with me. I did get to meet him shortly before he died, but... Uh, I asked him about the 24th gene pair, which he knew about, but he says no, and he gave me his last book. That's that's, But I, I really just didn't resonate with him at all. So I can't really have any sort of uh, intelligent or fair or expert comment on his work because I couldn't really read it. I found it just not digestible to me. Uh, so just too dry and too hard and, you know, Although well, there are people who've taught it in college classes and who, who in fact, I actually have a uh, question about that today from one of my new friends, Marina Seren, somebody you might want to interview sometime. She's a, a Vril contactee. She's like a young woman. Uh, she was asking me about Enki and whatnot. And uh, I, I'm going to have to talk to her about that later, but... Uh, uh, so, so I, I just, I'm just really kind of not informed enough on Sitchin himself to uh, to really make it any sort of fair or intelligent comment. Okay, so the the Syrians or the Anunnaki, if we want to use that term, from the Nibiru spacecraft land on Earth, they begin uh, mining and eventually decide that they're going to. Uh, create a, a human slave species uh, to do the mining on behalf of, of them. And uh, so now there's the involvement of this whole kind of Enki versus Enlil. Now, I, I found that interesting because that appears in various Sumerian texts, such as the Atrahasis and the Eredu Genesis that talk about Enki and Enlil and, and Marduk and those guys. But in, in this book, uh, what Radu Cinema talks about, he talks about uh, this being called Tenakal, 
as a, as a Syrian. So how does he relate to this whole uh, Enki, Enlil, Marduk kind of um, Anunnaki uh, pantheon? Well, the, the author refers to it as the time of Tenaku, Tenakau, the, the moment when that remarkable extraterrestrial creature descended on the ground from the carrier ship that had come from the conflict in space and saw a large group of primates hiding in fear. Uh, he's watching a holographic image as it's showing this. And one of the beings had the courage to get out of the bushes and get a little closer. Tenaku stops and he had that, what, what's called a sparkle of genius because he had an idea that they could transform these large primates into a superior humanoid. So in other words, he this Tenaku comes down and he sees the apes kind of like in 2001. And one of them stands out and, you know, like, oh, you're my guy. I'm going to, maybe I can, uh, this is very much like the 2001 uh, incident of, except that that is a little focused on killing, uh, you know, the human being being able to kill somebody. That's different. But it's this whole idea of the primate getting seeded by a higher, uh, higher being. Now, it's very interesting to compare that to today's world. Uh, you don't see human beings necessarily trying to seed animals, like saying, oh, that animals, but I mean, people interact with animals. They, there are animal communicators and whatnot. And there is a communication between different species and human beings, but it's not in the context like this. It's, it's not in the same context where you say, I, I see this lesser being and I'm gonna make him a, a better man. But then again, it's, it's also, this is what is happening in the New Testament when Christ sees uh, these lesser beings and is trying to open them up to a higher frame of consciousness. This is what occurs in the tradition of Romania with Zalmoxis. Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna make you a better man. We're gonna make you a better woman, a better whatever. You're gonna, you're gonna transform so it seems that this is an endemic part of the human process is to aspire to become, like the army says, be the best that you can be, only, only better, uh, to put that in a comical connotation. Uh, but yeah, human beings have this definite idea of self-improvement that goes beyond becoming a better worker. And then when you mention the slave situation, slavery is apparently as old as mankind. And this only reinforces that concept, whereby even in today's world, you have people with better jobs and lesser jobs. So it, it just seems to, and then you have the whole concept of a, of a beehive or a queen where everybody serves the so-called master. So this is just sort of the way uh, the world operates for better or for worse, to get work done. Well, I know in the Begotten Genesis, uh, Tenakau is described as the father of mankind. He's described as someone who emanates a lot of bliss and deep respect for cosmic laws. So it does seem that that's referring to this being Enki, a, a geneticist, as opposed to Enlil, his half-brother, who was described in the Atrahasis 
as committing a great evil. So, you know, again, is, is Tanakao Enki or someone else? Well, I, I really, he, he seems to be somebody else. I, I'm really not that fluid with, with Enki because I haven't read the Sitchin work. You know, so I, I really can't comment on that because I really don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but he's, you know, he's portrayed as this sort of, yes, father-like figure who has X amount of wisdom and seems to know what he's doing. And, and even then he seems to know what he's doing. He's kind of sitting back and maybe smiling on humanity saying, oh, uh, I hope you all work it out. I wish the best for you. It sounds rather almost borderline conceited, but I'm, I don't really know. I don't know what it's like to be a god. Uh, it's like you could, uh, you know, if you had a bunch of uh, dogs or something or some a bunch of animals that you supervised over, you could kind of uh, pit them against each other or put them in situations where you had some sort of control. But no, I, I don't really know. I, I do know one woman that had a bunch of animals of different types. And I one time was in her very large kitchen and they were all like standing at attention. Like she says, they didn't, inter they didn't interact poorly with each other. And I thought, wow, this is remarkable. I said, so she says, yeah, they, they know to keep their place because they're all living together. She fed them all. So she was like their master. But I'm saying is, you know, I, I really don't know what it's like to be in a position like Tenneco, where he's, uh, you know, he's portrayed as a benign master of destiny. And I, I you know, I, I just, I just don't know. I mean, I'm just, it's like, uh, yeah, you make some definite points there, but uh, it's just, it's just a bigger picture of humanity than necessarily we we care to think. And he, he also has the liability of trying to describe this to a outside audience. He's Radu is watching this in a holographic projection which is deeply resonating with what's inside of his mind and communicating to him very personally, very personal, specific truths that he is taking extensive notes on and trying to convert it, convert it, convert it into book form. Uh, I know that he was very challenged by this book because he wrote this to me and told me um, how challenging it was. But nevertheless, uh, he came out with it and I, I okay well it does look like this Tanaka I mean wh wh whoever he is I mean it sounds like he's Enki but you know you, you don't know that fair enough so this uh Tanaka is involved in creating different branches of humanity and he, and he, cre he creates two primary uh, branches that he, he describes as the ENL branch and the ENK branch and in the book you have a diagram I'm just going to do a screen share so you can see it where it shows the genetic strands you know beginning with the stellar influences you know beginning with uh, then you have the primate who is experimented upon you know on by Tenakau or Enki if you want if you like and uh, it seems that there's the L branch and the K branch and the L branch has more of the extraterrestrial DNA within it 
and the K branch has less. So do you want to comment about, about that diagram and about these two branches of humanity that Tenakau created? Well, yes, he's basically saying that the extraterrestrial branch or the ENL branch is, is much more uh, evolved spiritually. And the others are just kind of muddling along. And you can see whether he's specifically accurate about this or not, you can definitely see what he's saying in, in ordinary human beings, where some people are concerned with mostly, mostly feeding themselves and raw survival, and other people have much more elevated ideas of who they are, what they're doing, and what they want to be. Um, and of course, one can be corrupted. You know, the lesser beings can, can corrupt the higher beings. This also brings uh, to light the, uh, the characters in the, in the book, H.G. Wells' Time Machine, where you have the Eloi and the Morlocks. And the Eloi are the more highly bred, but it evolves into a situation where they become food for the Morlocks. It's sort of the other way around and it switches where the, the lower beings take on and the higher beings are kind of like, so I guess what you'd say, not doing any work that they become food for the, the lower beings. So there's this constant push pull, which is symptomatic of, of the way things work in the world. So I, I think whatever he's created here is a, is a mirror at the very least, is a very mirror of what goes on in evolution. He's challenged with the task of trying to describe it in terms that people can understand. And of course, it's very detailed. But we, he would be the first one to admit that the actual detailed details are going to be far more complex. So this um, differentiation of uh, humanity into two groups, one with more extraterrestrial DNA that gives them these higher order abilities and they're able to uh, meet with and interact with the ETs and the other branch has less DNA, more of the primate DNA and, and they're kind of more or less like a, a worker race, if you like. So it seems like the the the, Syri the Syrians on Nibiru, or if you want to call them the Anunnaki, they created you know, two prototypes of, of humans, you know, one to be a, a superior race and the other to be an inferior race that would really just, you know, provide hard work and service to the superior, who in turn would be subordinate to the Anunnaki. So is that pretty much the idea? Pretty much. And of course, but you can see this in a corporation. We have the people that go out and do the legwork and you have the, the executives in an office. And then you've got the person over that, or the stockholders, or the you know the great manipulators. Uh, not that they have to be that in a negative context, although they usually are. So it's it's just like this is just one more. You know, this is sort of what happens, and and people are evaluated by their relative skills in 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 work, and and this is going to go. It's just like breeding. I used to breed this on farm, what is it, uh, plantations. They breed workers to be stronger and better. 
uh, on the physical level. And you know, this is the whole whole idea of of breeding. And uh, in that respect, it's nothing new. In this respect, but in the respect is he's offering it in a completely new context. And he's basically telling us that what goes on in the world is not an accident. It's not an accident. So it does uh, seem this is connected in some way to this RH positive versus RH negative division between humanity, where 85% of people are RH positive and 15% are RH negative, and that 15% supposedly have more of the extraterrestrial DNA. Would, would that be accurate? Well, I don't know if it's accurate. I mean, it's, it's a reasonable uh, projection. It's a reasonable projection. But uh, one of the problems, and you probably know this as well, if not better than myself, is so many of the people in this ET world or advocating contacts or, you know, stark raving nuts. <laughs> you know, so many of them are that advocate certain things or certain beings. So although they might appear to be of a higher intelligence or something, it's, you know, it's not. And this applies to the RH negatives too. It's like, it, it's not necessarily an index to their, uh, intelligence or their spirituality and then there's also a dark pall over many of this when you get into the uh the more negative association with rh i think rh negative it, it can go either way i i think my personal opinion is that when you get these so-called evolved beings it's it's just like two heads of a coin it can go either way it can go either way and i think uh, I would have liked to have seen him address more, he does address it somewhat, uh, the nature of evil as it parlays into all of this. He does address it, though. One of the things that I found fascinating was that in the creation of these two branches of, of humanity, one having more extraterrestrial DNA than the other, is that some of the Syrians, including Tanakau, as I recall it from the book, chose to incarnate in the ENL branch, this branch that has more of the, the extraterrestrial DNA. So it seemed that that was one of the considerations for creating that branch, that that would be more receptive to extraterrestrials themselves incarnating and then living on Earth in one of these um, physical human bodies, like an Adamic body, a, 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 perf a perfect body, which I think originally was androgynous, and then you have the the other beings, the ENK beings with less extraterrestrial DNA, that they would pretty much be ruled by these extraterrestrials that have incarnated into these ENL bodies. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. It's... Uh... I think one of the big challenges here is, and he gives examples of that and say what I said earlier about these people living amongst us on the inner earth uh, and from the inner earth living on the surface world. It, 
sounds like there's all these people, but then again, they don't make themselves available for inspection, which is understandable to some degree. But it's also also the fact is people are um, what can I say? There, by and large, humanity is not a species that remembers these things very well. And many of the people who quote unquote do remember are suffer from other issues to, to the point where it wonders if they really do remember. So what I'm saying is there is, I, I'm one of the big problems that he faces is that it, when he talks about, particularly in the in the um, seventh book, the Etheric Crystal, is humanity comes up short. Humanity comes up short. Now, this is the whole circumstance of religions. Is that humanity comes up short. They need to be relieved of their sins. They need to get off the wheel of samsara and achieve, achieve nirvana. Humanity is in a in a bit of a snake pick, to say the least. So when you have this idea of these well-rounded, he doesn't use that word, but these evolved beings, it's kind of like you don't really see them too much, if at all. You might see them in your own visions or your own dreams, or you might, but many of the um, icons people choose, but that's more societal icons, icons. You know, they usually leave a lot to be desired. So what I'm saying is, this sounds very good, and perhaps it's good, but it, it's not something we really see. Uh, it's, it, you know, th this is what I have to say about it. it. It's like, where where is the beef, so to speak, of this? And I think that he has a huge challenge, as and maybe that's why his last book is so difficult and challenging, because he has talks about these lofty ideas, but there's a certain point where it has to be delivered, which is the very essence of Messiah, means deliverer. So this becomes a critical, a point of critical mass with regards to what he is expressing or trying to express. And we could parlay that into the whole ascension concept of mankind ascending because it's very easy to focus on the downfall because there's so much it's in your face all the time you know just living in in the world well i want to go back to this uh, diagram again i just want to kind of share that uh showing the genetic strand so it does seem from uh this book forgotten genesis that the extraterrestrials created these two branches of humanity because they intended to have some of them, some of the, the Syrians or the Anunnaki, whatever you call them, incarnate into this L branch and they would become the new ruling class. And that was they did that because apparently um, Earth's uh, terrain, gravity, atmosphere and all of that was in, inhospitable for the extraterrestrials themselves other than spending you know, just a short period of time, maybe in an environmental suit. So they had to create these these beings, and then um, and that uh, enables 
uh, Tenakao or Enki to incarnate into the human body. And then later on, uh, it talks about how these two branches, the L branch and the K branch, kind of created, uh, intermingled and created a hybrid species. And that hybrid species were, were known as the demigods. And that's and that that matches what we know about the um, uh, the this 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 succession of rule on earth from the gods to the demigods and then to human ancestors that's described uh, in the king's list and in the uh, Manitho's chronology of uh, Egypt's rulers that you did have this kind of chronology. So that diagram. Ten, it gives us an outline of, of how it happened and why it happened in that way. Yes, yeah, very detailed. And but then again, this brings back the whole concept of, you know, it's like the ENL branch, the higher branch, incarnating, you know, into a quote unquote toxic environment. It's too much. They have to have special genetics to come into it. It's like they can't tolerate, understandably can't tolerate the you know, the ghetto, so to speak. Nevertheless, they're moving into the ghetto. I mean, it's like, this is kind of the, and they're going to interact in the ghetto. And then there's a combination of it. It when, when I stand back and look at this existentially, it looks like, why in the hell is anybody coming here? You know, it's because it's like, uh, you know, it, it's just, I, I'm just looking at it existentially. And say yes, it does explain uh, so much of of what's gone on on this world, uh, which of course is this is the the main predicament. Why does one come into this world? I don't necessarily see it so negatively as a human being, but when I'm confronted with this information, this is what what it makes me think of. What 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 were you all thinking in the first place? Well, you know, even up to the so-called high alien level what what on earth were you people weren't thinking to even you know deal with this bag of bags of flesh but anyway well you know this gives us an interesting framework for understanding ancient history that you know there was a minority of the planet that had this superior enl kind of genetic right. makeup and they, they formed the ruling class of civilizations like atlantis and that you know, the Atlanteans had their power divisions, but these were between those that had that E and L genotype in, in dominance uh, in their own makeup, but that the surrounding peoples were the E and K, this kind of like less extraterrestrial hospitable genetics makeup with uh, fewer abilities. I mean, they were hardier in constitution, but they didn't have the kind of psychic abilities, the, the kind of uh, superior intelligence of these ENL beings, and that Atlantis imploded, and, and then these ENL beings uh, kind of like escaped. They, they went into the inner earth and found places of refuge, leaving the, the surface of the planet to be dominated by the other group, the ENK. Branch. Yeah, and this goes back to what I was just pointing out. It's like, the, you know, with all of this great evolution, you know, the whole story of Atlantis is one of destruction and, as you say, escape. And and it's like, so this battle is like, you know, it's a situation that, that doesn't really get better. Yet, inside of us, as human beings, uh, we have hope. 
we have hope that somehow this ship can be corrected, uh, if not the whole ship, our own individual ship. And, and that's what it all comes down to, is correcting our own ship uh, so that we can survive um, all, all of this stuff. But that, that's exactly, you know, the big, the big uh, game at work. What becomes, I suppose, the most hopeful aspect is, you know, when, when he goes into Shambhala and he really, this is perhaps the most beautiful and redeeming aspect of his work is this connection to Shambhala in the center of the earth where you have uh, harmony beyond belief. And, and the Shambhala is not identified with ETs, but rather with the inside of the earth. Now, isn't Shambhala made up mostly of the ENL humans that escaped the surface of the planet because they saw that it was entering this period of uh, degradation and barbarity so they escaped into the inner earth and they went deeper and deeper inside and that's how Shambhala uh, was created exactly it's it's yeah exactly well it was Shambhala was not created by the ENL beings unless they're sort of creating a adjunct to it a reference frame of civilization within this but Shambhala's created from the vibrational frequency that it emits out of a black hole, uh, essentially. Um, but this, this, yes. So, it, yeah, it would be uh, an identification with that inner period of harmony, or he's talking about these physical and etheric, etheric planes coexisting because of the. The frequencies of the planes were too close were, were quite close and then of course uh it separates it separates and you know what you say is essentially correct so what would you say to those that are that have pointed to a, a very large spacecraft that is shaped that has a sphere shape that's kind of like almost as big as the moon that has recently arrived in our solar system who and and it's claimed that Enki is uh the in charge of that spacecraft that it's that it is a kind of like conducting genetic experiments and they're here to help humanity uh, regain its original Adamic DNA what what would you say to that kind of information I have to I have to ask you because I have not heard of this and if you could inform me, I mean, you just did, but if you could kind of give me just some more context of when did this start appearing? Is this is this been something that's actually been reported on objectively, or is this something that contactees are coming up with, or what is the context of this ship appearing? Uh, yeah, there are several people that have talked about this. There's um, Elena Danan, who's a contactee, and there's also uh, there's an army insider I've been working with, JP, that talks about fleets of ships arriving in our solar system and that that one of them is Enki's ship and that he's here to help restore uh, the original Adamic DNA. So this is uh, an area of, of interest to a lot of people and I'm just wondering if uh, 
if this is a cycle of history that is repeating itself, that this has happened many times in the past where that, I mean, you called him, or sorry, not you, but Radu was given the name Tenakal, that he that he arrives and he's involved in 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 the kind of like um, the genetic modification of, of humanity, that he considers himself the father of humanity. This is the kind of language that Elena Danan has used to describe Enki on board of this, this ship, which she, she also calls Nibiru. No, I have heard of her, but I've never actually heard anything she said or, or whatnot. And I'm not so plugged into that um, stream of consciousness. So I can't really, I really can't comment on it. Um, I, you know, it, it's my own personal, I guess, inclination that people should be more concerned about them, their own situation than they should about, you know, trying to joust with ETs and whatnot. That's just my own personal orientation, but I, I can't judge that. And I can't really, I've just never heard this before. So I, I can't really comment on it, on, uh, on that. If, if he's appeared, the problem is when these creatures appear, they appear, whether they appear in ephemerally or not, they kind of don't stick around. And, and they kind of leave people holding the bag. It kind of attracts everybody att as attention. This is the history of all of this contactee movement going back to the 50s. It's here, it's here, it's here. And then it kind of goes away and then it comes back again. And this all comes back to what I was saying about the challenge of Radu is, is to deliver, is to actually deliver something that is tangible. If, I mean, and maybe that's not fair because, you know, this is the whole uh, situation with the Christian era. That which is tangible, if you, if you reduce it too far to tangibility, then it's not spiritual. And so you've therefore, you know, if you don't see the forest from the trees, you, you know, it's not like you need a, a baby messiah to hold up and show off. But this is, tends to be what happens with the contactee movement. It comes out and announces itself, and everybody pays, not everybody, but people pay attention to it, and then it goes away. So uh, it's, a, it's a consistent, repeated situation. Uh, well, it'd be very interesting to see what, what happens in the next uh, 12 months or so, because I, I do think we are at a pivotal time in our history. I, I think these reports of different extraterrestrial groups arriving, uh, this seems to be substantiated by the recent James Webb Space Telescope images showing uh, things happening around Jupiter. I mean, you actually have HARP conducting experiments on Jupiter. So, you know, there's empirical data showing that there's stuff happening around Jupiter, which is where uh, these, uh, you know, both contactees and insiders have reported these fleets of ships have parked themselves. So something seems to be up. And we'll find out. But I know 2023 is an important year uh, for, for all of us because it seems to be the end of a cycle. Many people talk about that being uh, the kind of uh, the, the, the final phase of, of this kind of window of transition that we have. And I know it also coincides with the 20 year Montauk cycle. And you have something planned in yes. Romania next year. So you want to tell us about that? Yes, and I'm, I'm hoping you can join us uh, on that. So August 23, August 23, August 10th to 14th, 
2023, <clears throat> I've actually reserved and put a down payment on the Chuck Lavina Scout Camp where uh, Stephanie South uh, and myself had, and I will explain her in a second, conceived of this idea to do a dream workshop uh, during that special period. Now, Stephanie is the, see, the, she is the curator and disciple of Jose Arguez, the author of The Mind Factor, who's responsible for Earth Day, uh, Earth, Whole Earth Week, the Whole Earth Catalog. It was his teaching as a professor that inspired these things. And also uh, for all this Mayan calendar phenomena that everybody got so fascinated with. But the Mayan calendar originates during that time period of August 10th to the 13th or whatever. It's known as the Lion's Gate, as I said. This was the Montauk biorhythm because this is when these experiments culminated in Philadelphia in 1943, Montauk in 1983. Uh, the chambers in Romania beneath the Sphinx were opened in 2003. The 20-year biorhythm is the strongest. Now, as I said, in 2003, we were waiting for something to happen. What would this big biorhythm be? And it was a huge blackout uh, extending all the way into Canada from centered around uh, Preston's property in Cairo, New York, not far from Albany. Now, extended all the way to Montauk. Now, we were waiting. At the same time, we didn't know this till years later that they were breaching the chamber beneath the Sphinx in Romania. Now, I posit, because of all that I've been through with the dates of August 10th to 14th, that there will indeed be a big occurrence in August 10th to 14th, 2023. And of course, I focused on the astrology for that, particularly with the location of Chaklavina Cave. And there is a kite, what is called in astrology, a kite uh, in, in the configurations of the stars, which is a beautiful time for transformation. So because Stephanie's legacy is from the Jose Arguez school, which identifies with uh, they used the base 20, the Mayans. The calendar used the base 20. That's why the 20 years of significance. Between her and myself, we're going to cross-pollinate our, our legacies here and have a what we call a galactic dream workshop. Um, I will be sending you personally and as well as the others participating in a, you know, this is a PDF or a, a book or something like this to help us cultivate our dreams, because this is a, a time not only to work on our individual dreams, but our bigger dreams, the dreams for humanity, the dreams for the galaxy. So we want you to bring your dreams, your personal dreams, whether they be to find out some of the answers to the questions you have that you brought up here tonight, or whether they're different or go beyond that. And of course, my dreams, her dreams and everybody else who participates on a big level, in addition to our own individual personal dreams. Uh, and, and, this is, uh, and this is what Jose Arguez did at, at, uh, in 1970 at UC Davis. He took all of his students and he divided them into astrological groups by their sun sign and says, work on your dreams, work on your dreams. When he put all of them together, this is what created Earth Day, Earth Week. 
this is this is the magic of what he did. And I said, we need to take this and do it bigger. And she agreed. So we will, uh, this is our first experiment or foray into this. We hope to make it much bigger. And we're hoping, and some of his, his students who are still alive are still carrying out their dreams, uh, you know, 50 years later, whatever it is. So this is, this is activation of the dream. Let's say this, activation of the dream. And uh, that's, it's, it's very exciting. So where do people go to get more information about uh, your books, uh, especially Forgotten Genesis? That would be skybooksusa.com, skybooksusa.com. You can go there and you can also um, go to Kindle or Amazon and get the books through there. And they are in bookstores as well, some bookstores. We don't have as many bookstores as we used to, but uh, they are available and ordered through the bookmark. Forgotten Genesis is the book we've been discussing today. It will certainly broaden your horizons on the potentialities as well as the history of mankind. Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for coming on Exile Politics today and, and sharing information about uh, this incredible series by Radu Cinema. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. You have been listening to Exile Politics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.